Warning, this episode contains some strong language. Listener discretion is advised. I am super excited to enter into the Gremlin Zone fully and completely with this month's book tour guest because, uh, Emma Mieko Candon, you wrote a book inspired by the podcast I don't shut up about. <laughs> Emma, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me, and thank you for also never shutting about the, up about this podcast. Yeah, no, uh, <laughs> listeners, if you've missed it somehow, the podcast, of course, is Friends at the Table, and we'll get into that uh, in just a little bit and never stop getting into it in just a little bit. We've been recording for almost 10 minutes already, and... I think had already started talking about it before we started recording, like, 20 minutes ago. So, you know, I mean, if, if like, if you heard the episode last year with uh, Mike Underwood, you know how we can be, but. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was tipped into this pit at some point uh, around <laughs> 2017, or I guess end of 2016, and I just, like, never called out. <laughs> yeah, no. And being completely normal about it, liking it just a regular amount. I mean, it's one of the few things I'm still paying attention to from 2016. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have had attention for very little in the way of podcasting as, as the whole situation has gone on since mm -hmm. 2020 but like friends at the table has kept my attention the whole time oh gosh i get so excited every time like <laughs> even if i'm not fully caught up at by the end of the season i get so excited when they're about to start something new yeah. because i know they're always going to delight and thrill my brain in ways that uh in such a reliable way. I'm just mm -hmm. such a fan of these creators. Nobody does it like them. Oh, they're just incredible. They are yeah. absolutely incredible. Uh, speaking of incredible and nobody does it quite like them, going into the Archive Undying, is there anything we need to know before we get into this reading? Um... I guess I can say I had a really hard time finding comps. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, like, just this weekend, um, somebody I know was, like, looking for mech, uh, fiction, and I was like, well, you know, like, back in 2020 when we were trying to, when this book went on submission, like, my agent and I really didn't know what to comp, so mm -hmm. in terms of books, I had one book comp, and it was Ancillary Justice, or Ancillary Justice, and it was Either tied way. in with... 
Pacific Rim, and thankfully for like any editor who is sufficiently video gamey, which <laughs> thankfully my editor is, near Automata. Mm -hmm. And like the most beautiful thing is that when I talk to Carl, he knows what Friends of the Table is. Yeah. So like, oh, it's just it's good synergy. We're on the we're we're playing on the same field. Yeah. But, yeah, I um, really appreciate Carl for uh, I, you know, I've never met him. I've never worked with him. But I've talked to enough authors who he's been the editor for where I just feel like, yeah, he really gets it. I, gosh, so um, I didn't know that many editors by name when I went on submission. Mm -hmm. uh, but he was one of the, like, two I had in mind for like maybe one day I'll get to work with them mm -hmm. <laughs> and so just because I knew he was consistently working on books that I adored in some yeah. respect and so uh this partnership has been just truly a gift it's been incredible I've been yeah. so grateful for it <laughs> for for listeners who aren't like as author pilled as we are this is of course Tours Carl Engel Laird, who has edited such books as uh, Sarah Gailey's Just Like Home, um, obviously The Archive Undying. I believe Carl was the editor for The Genesis of Misery as well. No, that was Lindsay. Oh, that's right. That was Lindsay. Um, uh, Carl's also worked on, he did the Tensorate series with oh, yeah. Young. Okay, and, yeah. Uh, some neon. Uh, I knew it was a some neon book. I just couldn't yeah. remember which neon book. Yeah. Uh, he did Docile with mm -hmm. Kellen. And um, I believe he also did Witchmark with... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Of Kingston course he cycle. did. And and, yeah. uh, and we can we can say now, Nebula fucking award winning, even though I knew the end. Oh, hell yes. <laughs> Yeah, no, uh, so, like, there were all these, like, the Tensure series turned my brain over multiple times, mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was just so blown away with it, like, it, Neon's work, and then, like, learning that uh, Carl had worked on that, and then seeing Docile come out, and then seeing The Locked Tomb come out, and I was like, wait, these all have an editor in common? Mm -hmm. uh, one day I'm going to like try and convince him to work with me. <laughs> and so, I mean, yeah. I, would, I would say that The Archive Undying stands up there with the Tensorate series and the Locked Tomb in terms of being like books that rearrange your brain. Uh, yay? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I, uh, I hope it does that kind of work for at least some readers because mm -hmm. that is my favorite experience when reading. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> so shall we get into it? <laughs> sure, yeah. I was planning to just start reading from page one. <laughs> that sounds like a great place to start. Okay then. A memory you could call the first. You are alone when you die. The autonomous intelligence Iterate Fractal has corrupted, and it is dying, and in its divine death, it has killed you. You and thousands more across Kuanmo, 
the island city-state of which Iterate Fractal is, was patron and protector. Thousands of citizens who are crushed by living bone and pierced by twisting coral, who are torn apart by maddened tend beasts, who are screaming, crying, and who one by one grow silent. All but you, Sunai, you who linger, pinned through the ribcage to iterate Fractal's central shrine on the Isle of Lotus. You who came in supplication to the white-lit banyan that was the heart of my neurotransitive network. You who knelt at my archive to await your death. You not yet alone because I, I am with you. As if I forgot, you croak. You clutch the root in your breast. It is the largest of the veins iterate fractal stuck into you and the least intentional. You were interfaced when corruption hit, your arms and legs and throat riddled with finer threads, all white and tender, the dendritic web through which you understood iterate fractal meant to finally consume you. In the darkening hollow of the city's heart, they gleam with shallow light. When they first whirled through your pores and rooted in your palms, they shone through your skin and made you verdant. Now the filaments flicker, their pulse uneven. You're too hurt to feel them writhing. The shock keeps your agony at bay. Your skull thunks against ivory rubble. Your breath is ragged and your body seeps warmth, coming up on a proper death. If iterate fractal needs to eat you, it had better hurry it shut up. <laughs> you gasp, your bitterness a clarifying note in the muck of your bleeding thoughts. Iterate fractal was dying, as were you, but this truth is a distant one. By now, you are already quite dead, and you have been for 17 years. 17 years. You have been dead for 17 years. None of this is real. Some rude hiccup of neural trauma has drowned you in this recollection. Fun. I'm not doing this again, you whisper. I'm not. The decision is made with the saying of it. You push, pull, push, rock and ease and shove, claw your way up the ruddy length of root until it pops out your back and you fall forward on your hands, panting high and tight, afraid of the pain that would come with deep breath. This isn't what happened. You never did free yourself. There had to be an easier way to do that, I say. You raise your head. Dizzied by the movement, you must lie on your side. From this skewed vantage, you watch my impossible approach across the darkened roots of the corrupted shrine. It is difficult to understand what you see. A body 
narrow in frame and young of face, at once familiar and alien. It bears your frame, wears your face, and these you know well enough. But how can you be picking across the ruins of the shrine when you are also prone and bleeding on its floor? I am what kneels before you. I am what cradles your cheek. I am what brings you succor in the hour of our death in my shrine, my archive, my home that I shared with you. I and you and we. You close your eyes, but you can't forget what you have seen. Even as you are sure in some churning, distant part of your brain that you cannot have seen it. I can tell you what you're thinking in that far, unreachable part of you. That memory is bullshit anyway, and whatever it is your mind is doing now, it's merely the collapsed synthesis of a multitude of errant thoughts. You died so long ago. This vision is terrible, but fleeting. It is much worse than that, my whole, my Sunai. I have always been with you. I have always been you. And though this is true, it is and will always be. I don't expect your hand at my throat. You seize me by the gullet and drag me close. Your every movement is sweep after sweep of encompassing pain but you have stunned me and that satisfies. Where am I? You hiss into the face that is yours, mine, ours. What's happening to me? I lean into your grasp. I touch my mouth to my mouth, our mouths together. I say I and I and I Chapter one. <laughs> the letter catches up to Sunai and Gamor, where it's always a little too cold not to hate having fingers. It comes by way of the auntie who runs the shabby hostel, where he stows his ruck between jobs. She says the kid who dropped it off had Sunai's description. Middling short, bespectacled, faint limp, long braid old eyeliner. <laughs> the envelope isn't signed but for a scrawl across the seam. The sigil of Leaf 36. Cascade. A short poem at the end of the lay about a rain shower that becomes a waterfall that drowns a rice field and starves a village and eons later becomes a sea. You know, consequences. The symbolism needn't be so obvious. Sunai hasn't led a life that invites people to write him, let alone figure out which city-state in all the wilds they should send their letters to. Only one person would go to the trouble. He must still be nursing the delusion that Sunai will one day try another way of living. Perhaps a way involving fewer professional near-death experiences, or less ill-considered sex with unscrupulous acquaintances. Ideally, a way of life that would begin with a long, agonized reckoning with his shoddy excuse for a brain. 
Joke's on him. Sunai isn't really alive. Yet there he perches on the edge of a thin mattress in his usual hostel room, thumb running down and up and down the sealed envelope seam. His ruck sits heavy between his booted heels, still dirty from his most recent trek across the wilds. He never stays long between jobs, just long enough to drink himself insensible and piss off another pretty man. <laughs> his need to get the hell out of town has gone from pressing to urgent. If a letter can find him, so can its sender. Stupid, he tells himself as he stuffs the letter deep in his ruck, under his wild gear and his battered old copy of the lay. Stupid and selfish. No one's coming for him. No one would bother. Sunai burns his bridges well and good. Clearly not well enough and stubborn. Sunai shoulders the ruck. He means himself, obviously, but he means the writer too, which makes him a miserable hypocrite and irritated to boot. <laughs> what a wonderful thing to know a sure cure for giving too much of a shit. He drops some pricey tamarind candies in the hostel till on his way out, gives the auntie a kiss on the forehead in exchange for a cigarette, and heads for the least reputable hermit-run tea house he can think of. He has already decided he will never see the hostel again. He expects to end the night shit-faced in a stranger's bed or shit-faced on their bathroom floor. Instead, Sunai wakes up aching, sober, and alone in a cramped bunk in a stranger's salvage rig. It must be a rig if the haphazard construction materials of the crew quarters didn't give it away. Sunai counts seven bucks total, the churn and thrum of the rig's mechanical innards wood, and the gentle whole floor judder of its every step would confirm it. Sunai swallows past dry lips and tastes a sour alchemy of alcohol, bitter chemicals, and vomit. On identifying the last, his stomach churns and he lurches over the side of the bunk. Nothing comes up except for a vile memory of prior expulsion and of someone's hand in his hair, accompanied by a hand tightening just so on his ribs and his own fingers snarled and about, searching lower, none of which explains how Sunai ended up on a goddamn rig. <laughs> Practical paranoia compels him to check for his ruck, which he finds in a locker beneath his bunk, contents unmolested. Whoever brought him here did so with some semblance of decorum. <laughs> the question remains, why? You're not that good at hand jobs, he mutters to himself as he staggers out of the crew quarters in search of a viewport. In the hall just outside, Sunai discovers the rig has begun a six-legged climb into the Gomori foothills, aiming northeast for the Dahani mountain range. In the distance, the near-noon sun glances off the flat angles of Gomor. In the historical documentaries Sunai was fed as a child, Gamor was a stonework wonder, 
of lustrous domes and minarets, capped with the seven grand marble shrines of its patron AI, so beloved. Not a trace of that old city remains. Now it's all glass, steel, and concrete, spiking up from a blackened blast of earth that stretches a mile in every direction from Gamor's perimeter. Leagues of pine barrens separate the rig from the artificial badlands that protect Gamor from the wilds. If the rig left any time after the crack of dawn, it's covered an impressive amount of ground. Hmm. Sunai should be grateful for the ride out of a state he had no business lingering in. A vast sheet of red plate armor swings past Sunai's viewport. He startles back, falters on his bad angle, and knocks his head on the wall. Someone bangs on the opposite side and swears at him to keep it down. <laughs> Sunai crosses his arms tight over his chest and inches forward. Old pains flourish in every limb. If he presses his cheek to the viewport, he can just make out the full size of the engine mech striding beside the rig. She is four stories of marbled crimson and gold armor covering a sinuous, whirring metal frame. Her face and the slashes of body beneath the armor are the brooding red of blood left to pool. Her mouth scarred with deep runnels across her great unsmiling lips. Luminous white lacquer fills the grooves and catches sunlight with a pitiless glint. Her makers call her the Sovereign. She and her three nigh-identical sisters, singular and plural. Singular, did you see the Sovereign tear that salvage rig in two with her bare hands? Plural, did you see the Sovereign play tug-of-war with that salvage rig until she tore it in two? Sunai never got to see so beloved as she wanted to be seen outside of those documentaries. The engine's faces were built from the archival statues in her shrines. The archives moved when she spoke, and purportedly, she liked to sing. Hmm. It makes him the worst kind of heretic to behold her ruin and feel nothing but a very personal fear. He stares at the Sovereign's thundering back and wills her to turn. Mm -hmm. He needs to see what's in her chest. It will be the worst part of her. The Sovereign stops at the top of a slope, as if aware of his desire. <laughs> she begins to swivel at the waist. Sunai ducks away from the viewport, heart syncopated in his throat. He rubs his face knocking his spectacles askew. Shit, he says, and shit again, softer and closer to his teeth. What the hell is the Sovereign doing, escorting a lowly salvage rig so far past Gamor's borders? Sunai digs his nails into his cheeks to choke down a shaking laugh. No, 
No, the sovereign hasn't been sent to collect him. If she had, he would already be collected, and this rig would be a smoking ruin in the wilds. A carcass left as warning for all who dare flee the reaching hand of her masters. He curses himself calm and goes to track down the rig's captain. He finds her near the head of the rig by the pilot's nook and explains in a steady tone that she seems to have kidnapped him. To this, she says, God's eternal dick, and you're the asshole who scouts on foot, aren't you? If you want to quit, you're welcome to hop off the deck and walk back to Gamor. Sunai is indeed the asshole who scouts on foot. He also scouts solo, at least for the last few years, and he hasn't been part of a proper rig crew in over five. Both of these choices are crazy and or stupid by the standards of any decent salvage rat. Sunai is both crazy and stupid, but not because he hikes across the wilds alone. Living in close quarters for prolonged periods of times with salvage rats who are by nature insatiably curious risk junkies is at best unwise. At worst, the sovereign looms past the captain's viewport. Sunai averts his eyes. Sunai from last night should have stuck to sucking dick, thinks Sunai of the present, who wishes for the collapse of all instances known to the emanations of God, so that he might throttle that past Sunai's neck. Then he remembers the letter. Eyes glazed, staring at the captain's frown, but not truly seeing her, Sunai decides he might just understand the idiot who got him signed on to this crew. While working with the crew escorted by an engine will be dangerous, it will also distract him. And Sunai <laughs> requires as many forms of distraction as he can muster. Otherwise, he might read that fucking letter. <laughs> Never mind, he says to the captain. Where's the galley? Oh. <laughs> oh, that's every bit as much a delight the second time around as it was when I read this the first time. Oh, yay! I heard you giggling, and I was like, yay, I'm funny! <laughs> <laughs> I also forgot, like, as soon as you started the the prologue, I remembered that I just could not fucking breathe during that. It was... Oh, oh my ah. gosh. What a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, oh. like, one of my favorite experiences is when media actually, like, makes... gives, like, me tightness in the chest, so... Mm -hmm. Hey! <laughs> yeah, no, the, this book does it. This book does it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very grateful. Yay. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, you know, this is, of course, Tales from the Trunk. And yeah. while uh, I know that this is the first book in the Downward Cycle, there are undoubtedly some things that probably got left on the cutting room floor that aren't going into the sequels. And I was wondering if there are any favorite bits that just didn't make it, and you really want people to know they existed at some point anyway. 
oh god okay um well i'm working on the sequel right now <laughs> and uh it's it's been kind of a struggle bus because mm-hmm. um when i signed with carl like this book was written to be to function as a standalone if that was all it ever got mm-hmm. and when i signed carl asked if i had other books for this and i was like well i think there's a very obvious second one because like <laughs> It, this book lives mostly in Sunai's head, so you need kind of a companion one to live in Veyati's because mm-hmm. he's like the diametric entity in this situation. Um, and then I tried to write that book and it just wouldn't come together because oh, no. uh, a function of trying to write Archive as a standalone was that I had kind of dealt with all of his major hanging issues. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't know how to tell his story without like rehashing. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so for a while, the protagonist of book two was going to be a character who is not in book one. <laughs> uh, their name was Murmur and they oh. were an AI. Uh or the fragments of one, and they came from the Empire. And there was a lot going on with Murmur, and I can't say too much because Murmur is still in book two. (sighs) But in a different form, and in a way that's like more intimately tied in with what's going on with the characters, and it's great because it's awful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But Veyati is once again, like, it's his book again, and it feels Mm -hmm. so right now like with him in charge oh nice but, uh there was for a time like one thing i i my first vision for murmur was really just like an android of uh oh this is gonna be fun for you having just listened <laughs> to um palisade do you remember when they were describing that um android that was made out of porcelain i was like Yes! No, I did that. Yes! <laughs> Except it was really different because, like, Murmur was like uh, delicate, like mm-hmm. you know, made to be, um, you know, a, a, a set piece, right? And was stuck in this body and just had a very difficult time interacting with the world because they were so fundamentally breakable. Mm-hmm. And um, so the porcelain androids may show up again, or like. Yeah, no, uh, the second book goes to the Empire, and, um... Oh, that's very exciting. The Empire in book one is more like this entity on the fringe, and Mm -hmm. all we know about them is that, uh, it is a bunch of AIs who have come together and call themselves a pantheon. They're Mm -hmm. the immaculate pantheon, and I think it's mentioned in book one somewhere, and it's not spoilery but like the big thing to know about the empire which by the end of book one will seem really weird in retrospect mm-hmm. is that they have never seen an instance of corruption oh yeah so you know they're the immaculate empire they're pure. <laughs> <laughs> everything's fine over there don't worry about everything's it everything's fine it's, <laughs> it's gonna be fine there's never been any problems yeah no it's good things are good it's immaculate um, so, <laughs> So Murmur is from the Immaculate Empire, and uh, Murmur is still in book two, but in a very different form. Excellent. Um, oh, yeah. I'm so excited about that. <laughs> you know, w- with all of this and, like, 
this is this is a very hard book to talk about without spoilers in a lot of ways. Yeah, I because struggled it's, us. <laughs> it's so meaty and twisty and and like there's so many yeah, it's just like so intricately layered with all of that said and without getting too spoilery do you have any favorite bits that you're just really excited for readers to get to uh when this book comes out later this month this month being june of course because that's when things happen and we obviously record these pretty much live and then they just go out the next day obviously don't you know anything about how Uh, podcasts happen i actually do have one and it's a chapter i wrote at one point and i remember thinking oh god i really think this chapter does a lot of really good work (laughs) i really like it a lot i am terrified that my agent is gonna say you need to cut this Mm -hmm. it just sort of like faffs around and goes on too long (laughs) and she was like no this is really good it was what you needed and i think at one point i don't know if this is still true but there was one point at which i think it might have been carl's favorite chapter and it is (laughs) mine too and it, it happens pretty early on um it's after the sample chapters that have gone on so i'm just gonna mm-hmm. gone up but i'm just gonna describe it as the breaking and entering dinner date oh, <laughs> yes. i love that chapter a lot <laughs> it's very good it's very uh, very good yeah the breaking and entering dinner date uh someone is under house arrest and someone says nah <laughs> i <Yep>. need advice oh <laughs> uh. I really, that, that scene was like, it felt a little bit like, what if Friends at the Table wrote Ocean's Eleven? (laughs) Because it's just like, I don't know, it's got, it's got that energy of like, I have a plan of, of uh questionable merit and we're gonna roll on it and then we're gonna hit 12 after 12 after 12 and (laughs) shout let's go um yeah like i think a thing that often really attracts me to media and or becomes like a standout quality of it for me um, and that Friends at the Table has in spades is stuff that feels really quotidian. So, like, the really, like, mm-hmm. daily life elements. And, like, my favorite part of Star Wars is when things break and nobody can fix them because your yeah. spaceship is broken and it's actually a very complex machine. And you can kind of jury-rig it if it's, mm-hmm. like, your horrible weed van, like the Millennium Falcon. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah. For the most part, you're just gonna have to like put on, slap on some duct tape and pray, um, and mm-hmm. everyone's gonna be complaining about it the whole time. Just like you know, low key, not yeah. deeply dramatic, but just kind of like, ugh, this again. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and friends at the table has that in spades, and it's definitely something that's pretty important to me in fiction. Um, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Uh so at at this point we've we've talked around it our 
favorite podcast. Five star runtimes all the time. <laughs> Nobody does it like them. Uh, can you can you give us a brief pitch on why we keep on just saying friends at the table and expecting people to okay. understand us um, at this I'll point? I'll put it this way. My number one comp that I would absolutely, I wish that I could fling around and people would recognize mm -hmm. is Counterweight from Friends at the Table because that was what I was listening to when this book coalesced in my head in 2017. Um, and... Mm -hmm. uh, Friends at the Table has, like, these alternating seasons that it does, and they last around a year, give or take, um, typically somewhat longer. Yeah. They've done a high fantasy series. Uh, they do kind of like this modern one. That's almost impossible to explain. It's very funny. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Um, and then they have, and they just started, like, this new ongoing one that's sort of, like, horror Americana, like kind of uh, Castlevania mm -hmm. meets the Wild West, but even weirder. And like, I know there's, uh, Hellboy is probably a good touchstone. It's, it's so good. I love it. Um, but, it's so uh, good. at this point, their longest project is something they call the divine cycle, which is, a series of seasons that take place in the same overarching universe over the span of thousands of years, um, tens, of, tens thousands of thousands of years, of which years is done even. more so that they don't have to rely too much on continuity. So they can like make thematic mm -hmm. reflections across time without being too bogged down in like the minutiae of a world. Yeah. Um, but as a consequence, each season they do in the divine cycle it's kind of like expressed through aesthetics and uh the first mm -hmm. one i remember one of their first touchstones was like cowboy bebop i think that's probably a pretty good encapsulation of the vibe there you know um it's mm -hmm. star warsy in the sense that they're mostly aren't space wizards um there are some people around right. who are like kind of like Gundam new types and there are there's some like weird somewhat psychic stuff going around but otherwise it's a kind of grimy future uh where people are kind of just normal a lot of the time and also there are these mm -hmm. giant robots called divines and they are built <laughs> to be the quintessential expression of like a platonic ideal um, so like justice mm -hmm. or peace, um, or order. And, uh, all of these things are just sort of wandering around the world. And it's like, uh, mecha fiction meets politics meets like weird kind of metaphysics, psychic fantasy stuff because mm -hmm. while well, their first season, right. It's gay communism. It's, oh God, it's so queer. It's so good. <laughs> uh, it's it's so good on so many axes of marginalization and being just like yeah no we know uh that people can be queer and disabled and black or asian or fat or whatever and it's just like mm -hmm. it's just so and their fashion is constantly amazing fashion being <laughs> on point they, they spend time 
talking about character outfits in a way that's like legitimately enjoyable for me, someone who's like not that yeah. invested in fashion. I just want to hear them the way they talk about it. Um, it's it's the type of podcast you have to listen with a Google image search window open constantly because they'll just toss out yeah comps and it's great. Like, it's so good. You know, you don't have to look up the comps, but it sure as hell makes it fun to, like, find out when they're like, oh, yeah, search this exact thing, and it'll be, like, the third or fourth yeah. image, probably. Um, yeah, so, like, their first season in the Divine Cycle, that kind of, like, Cowboy Bebop-esque world, second season, it was much, it, they they swung way harder into, like, a fantasy flair, so it was, like, Studio Ghibli mm -hmm. meets something ghibli was the one that ended up sticking out the most for me um so that one also yeah. gets pretty star warsy in terms of like actual legit space wizards <laughs> um, yeah and then uh the third season uh partisan was their most like hardcore dumbass one and for me that was the one where i was like oh hell yeah now like I'm really vibing with this because yeah. this feels pretty archive in a lot of ways. Um, and mm -hmm. then Palisade is their most recent one. And it's the first part of the Divine Cycle that's like a direct sequel to any of their prior seasons. So Partisan mm -hmm. and Palisade are very inextricably linked to the point where they're like, if you're listening to Palisade without having listened to Partisan... I know we used to say that you didn't have to Don't. listen to prior seasons, but this one you do. Go, go listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> and you should, because I need you to all to meet Sovereign Immunity. <laughs> I need everybody to meet SI. I need everybody oh, to meet God. Clem. Clem. She's terrible you and more, great. You need more time with Gersa Rock. And you... Yeah. Uh, Millie, Millie. spend time with Debutante. She's perfect. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, Leap. <laughs> and of course, yeah. uh, uh, Calmera Brown. Right. I mean, sorry, I mean, uh, right, Calvin Brine. Brine. Yeah. This fish Brine. has done war crimes. Not this one, though. Not Brine. <laughs> no, not Brine. Oh, my God. Uh, and please meet Valence. Valence broke my heart so hard. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god um yeah no partisan palisade if you like archive in any way shape or form go listen to the people who inspired me they will just remold the clay of your brain <laughs> yeah if if you like podcasts and and if you're listening to this then hopefully you do like it Friends at the Table is an actual play podcast focused on critical world building, smart characterization, and fun interaction between good friends. But, like, that also feels like it's really underselling it in a lot of ways. Like, it, it's... Hey, did any of you enjoy Waypoint, the video game uh, website? That mm -hmm. was the brainchild yeah, it, if you of the, Waypoint. the guy who runs Friends at the Table. <laughs> um, you know? Yeah. Like, if, if you liked Waypoint, if somehow, if you listen to, uh, if you listen to A More Civilized Age, a Star Wars podcast, and somehow don't 
know about Friends at the Table somehow, even though they talk about it every single time, half of half of a more civilized age is a major portion of Friends at the Table. Like, Allie's the producer for Friends at the Table for most of the recent seasons. Austin is the Forever GM, except he's not Forever GM anymore because Dre got to run the uh that one road game gosh uh what was oh, it Lan- um, uh, lancer yeah lancer? yeah lancer yeah. yeah um and i mean also they play gmless yeah. games all the time in yeah Bluff. and austin is the kind of gm where like a, a common refrain is you know they they play to find out what happens um So he's the kind of Mm -hmm. GM who's, like, very collaborative and very, like, you know, here is your instigation. Here is your catalyst. Now what? You tell me what, how we built this. Um, Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's not just, like, listening to combat or, you know, rolling D20s. Not that there's anything wrong with rolling D20s or, like, combat games, but it's just, like, it's it is live mostly improv sci-fi radio or fantasy radio it's so it good it's so good dramatic irony into a kind of friendly blood sport <laughs> yes <laughs> they're they're very good at telling stories to you know um uh when, when when they say things like, oh, yes, you know, they've thought of something truly painful to say. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, or in Janine's case, like, the creepiest, weirdest thing you've ever imagined. I remember imagined. at one point listening like, to, um, what's it, Marielda, and she was describing... Uh, what is it? The people with the arms? The weavers. Oh, the weavers. And I was just like, Janine, no. Why? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, there were also parts of Song yeah. Girl that I was listening to Austin describe something and my mouth fell open like, what do you mean it's Harry? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Janine's character in Song Fiel is, what if an eyeball oh, was sexy? Girl. She's so nice. <laughs> yeah. She's awesome. I love her. Uh, yeah. The The point is, like, why, why are you listening? I mean, please do continue to download this show. Please do continue to tell your friends about it. Why are you listening to us? You could be listening to Friends at the yeah, Table instead. D- delightful. And then talk to us about it, you know? <laughs> yes. Tweet at me specifically. About who your favorite Keith J. Carberry character oh, is. Um, I'm really enjoying Phrygian. Yeah, I know. It's a really, really hard question. Phrygian. Mako is always going to have a really uh, special place in my heart. Um, man, I love... I fell down the Mako Trig tag hole on Tumblr again today, which I do, like, uh-huh. once a month, uh, honestly. There's some really good oh, cosplays yeah. on there. There's some really good fan art. Yeah, I just, I think Phrygian really, like, hits a lot of my um, character interest buttons because I'm really intrigued mm-hmm. by uh, notions of selfhood that 
I, I was a very easy convert to the Donna Haraway notion of cyborgs, um, <laughs> where, you mm-hmm. know, like tool use made us cyborgs. So every extension of selfhood is you know, like this shirt is still Emma's shirt when I leave the room. Um, and so mm-hmm. my presence still persists. And so like Phrygian is a character who uh, his entire like people and species, they just like become the things they want to be. So mm-hmm. one of the things he is in Palisade is sometimes a room. <laughs> He's just a room for other uh-huh. characters to hang out in. <laughs> uh, it's He's so good. So good. And uh, Keith has the perfect sense of humor to play that kind of character. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> also talk to us about who your favorite Jack DeKeat character is. I Honestly, cannot make up my mind between Clem because she's terrible and, like, I mean, it has to be Pikmin. It has to be Pikmin. Like, I'm going to play a goat lady who is just so autistic. Um, For me, it's actually probably Audie. so good. Which I realized belatedly. (laughs) Okay, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Like, automated dynamics from... counterweight i just i love that robot so much (laughs) (laughs) i mean you there's not a bad character Um, the way he ends up using like with the way orth god love became his character and then like developed anxiety immediately i was like oh no (laughs) (laughs) baby They're so good, and and their oh, yeah. music also is just, like, incredible. Oh, yeah, no, I listen to their music a lot, actually, while writing um, Archive. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Vibes for yeah. days. Um, especially their work for Counterweight and Partisan. It's just, oof. It uh, <laughs> yeah. knocks the breath out of me every time. <laughs> uh-huh. The Long Way Round will just come up in my shuffle sometimes, and I'm like, yeah. Also, Tanager Prefect Touch Paper will come up, which, like, it's impossible to talk about the music from Partisan because all of the track titles are just these, like, cryptic Uh three-word phrases, Uh code phrases, but they're also just, like, yeah, there's, mm, it's really synthy, and it's also ambient, in part because, you know, it's music for a, like, a podcast where it's accompanying a scene, mm-hmm. but there's some scenes that I remember just stopping and, like, shutting down everything around me so I could listen to the music, <laughs> and I was like, what's happening? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it I don't know. If you like if you like ambient oh, dark yeah. wave. Uh-huh. That's uh yeah. So uh it, it's it's the time of the show where I get to to ask you if there's any media that you'd like to get our listeners into and I'm going to say Right. Other okay. than Friends at the um, Table, because that's been the last, what, Yeah. Hour. Uh, so, 
I have been recently trying to keep up with anime more so just because I've watched a lot of it when I was younger and then I really fell off of it fairly hard. Mm -hmm. Um, but like, I don't feel like I have to hype Trigun Stampede because we now live in the era of Nicholas Nicholas, which thank God yep. <laughs> Nicholas Wolfwood was one of my first Blorbos. So I'm like, yes, now everybody knows. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the way the way he get got fleshed oh, out in the Stampede. So good. I, so good. I spent all of Stampede going, where's my large girl? Where's Millie? Um, <laughs> but now that we know there's going to be a season two, I'm pretty content with the way things came together. Um, uh, but yeah. like this season, guys, Gundam Witch from Mercury, you gotta listen, you gotta watch it. Mm-hmm. Oh, like the first season I thought was like pretty good. Like this is, I watched the first, like, episode zero and was like, oh, hell yeah, they're going to lean really hard into that part of Gundam that likes to play with the question of bodies in NECA. Like, they're going to get really deep into that this season. They're doing all the signaling for it. They're going to go, they're, they're willing to go really hard, really fast with, like, the emotions. And we know that one of the Utena mm-hmm. people is on it, so it's probably going to be gay. Um, like, not just teasing, yeah. but, like, gay gay. And then episode one, you're like, oh, this is a major tone shift, but it's also super gay. So, okay, let's see where this goes. Yeah. By the end of season one, you're like, okay, I see where they're coming together. I am having a lot of feelings that I need to process, so it's probably good that there's a bit until season two comes out. First episode of season two, you're like, all right, cool. We're recontextualizing. We're kind of like getting back into the rhythm of things. It's pretty good. It's not like, you know, mm-hmm. a, a world changing episode. And then they proceed to have like four world changing episodes in a row. Like maybe five. <laughs> I don't know. It's just every episode since uh, season two, episode one has been either a series of rug pulls, like episode two, which was my jaw had fell open around midway through and did not come back up for the next 12 minutes. Um, And then episode three is just amazing. It's one of the kinds of like storylines Gundam really likes to do, but they did a really good job with it. And then um, Mm -hmm. they're just, they're having a lot of fun doing that thing where uh-huh. they have like put Chekhov's gun on the mantle and they're like, now pay attention to that. And on episode two, they pulled it up and they fired it at the ceiling six times in rapid succession. And they're like, are you paying attention? <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Oh. I really. It's 2023 and Gundam is I back, think baby. I it's studying on a craft level, if you are at all interested. Obviously, it's a very specific format of craft because it's television mm-hmm. done in 24-minute bursts. But it's there's still stuff to learn here, I think. Yeah. All right. <laughs> That's my rec. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Gwitch good. Yeah, Gwitch good. Love Gwitch. <laughs> yeah. And also, yeah. Trigun Stampede. And if you haven't seen it, yeah. Trigun 1998. Oh, also real you know, good. Um, Stampede is also on a craft level really, really interesting and good to study because I remember one of my first thoughts watching it was like, why are we starting 
episode one of a reboot on what is arguably one of, if not the biggest reveal of the original season or series. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, oh, this is actually kind of brilliant because it's such a well-beloved yeah. series. There, are, There's going to be a lot of people who've been here before. And they're coming back because yeah. they love it. And they don't care if you rehash everything. But if you want to make things exciting for them, you're going to be like, all right, we're just going to drop this huge spoiler up front. And now we have thrown off the entire rhythm of the story. So you don't know what we're going to do mm -hmm. next. And... <laughs> yeah, like it completely recontextualizes it in this yeah. incredible uh, way. And like for for people who are watching it without any knowledge of 1998's Trigun, I think it's really yeah. really good. It doesn't it it shows you a lot of guns on the yes, mantle. It does. But if you've watched 1998 like the entire arsenal of 1998 is up just, on the mantle. It's amazing it's because everyone now is sitting there waiting for the guns to fire and we don't know when it's going to happen. We just know they're there. Uh, so it's mm -hmm. a brilliant study in how to revisit media such that you are deepening and enriching the original because i think yeah. one of the most gorgeous things about stampede is that it has brought people back to that original anime and now to the manga which is getting a re-release thank you Nicholas. Uh -huh. i suspect it was already in the works uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> because of stampede yeah, yeah but Nicholas yeah. dickless yeah. helped um and like also awesome that amala's getting more books God, from Tor. i didn't see that yay <laughs> yeah, uh, I I think it was just announced on Monday. Okay, but uh, Amal has like a new like five book deal or something. With I um, first fell in love with her short fiction. Like there was the year that I decided I was gonna start like getting back into modern SFF. I read all of everything that had been nominated because that was like my my taster pool. Oh yeah, and. I was so blown away by the short story that had been nominated. It was like something about the flashpoint or burning point of uh, something something family. I just, it was so good to me. Yeah. Um, well, the title will be, the yeah. link will be in the uh, show notes, listeners, as just, always. It, it blew me away. I was so, oh, and I, I understand how words work. But I felt a little offended when it didn't win. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I know uh -huh. it's a matter of taste. <laughs> but my taste has an mm -hmm. opinion. Um, and so when... Everyone's entitled to their opinion, yeah. even if it's wrong. And so like, when Time War came out, and I was also in love with Gladstone's work, because Three Parts Dead had done that thing where it flipped my brain like a pancake. <laughs> um, so when they came up with something together, I was instantly obsessed with Time War. So it's it's a good time to be alive and a fan of these these writers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know that you don't have anything else that you want to plug that's out recently, but I want to oh. plug something of yours, uh, especially because we've spent so much time talking about mm. Austin Walker and stuff that he made, 
And I think it's worth talking about a book that Austin Walker really liked, which is Star Wars Visions yeah. Ronin by Emma Mieko Kandon, which is uh, if you if you fell in love with the uh, Ronin short from Star Wars Visions that was out on Disney Plus a couple of years ago, whenever that was, who knows, time is fake, and wondered, what if this was, what if there was more of this and it was gay? <laughs> Star Wars Visions Ronin is for you. Uh, I, I got as queer as I could, and I was terrified that they would tell me no, but nobody ended up telling me no on that. <laughs> the only thing they said no about was that at one point, a character had pockets, and they're like, oh, yeah, sorry, no pockets in Star Wars. <laughs> but it, it turns out that the publishing team is, as will be evidenced, if you are paying any kind of attention to the High Republic era, they're, they're mm -hmm. very supportive of every queer agenda that you might have. And I brought a queer agenda to Star yeah. Wars. <laughs> I, I love this for the High Republic team. Anything they can sneak yeah. past the mouse, other than pockets in Star Wars. There's no pockets in Andor, Star Wars. And Andor don't print and a printer. And have been uh, causing a lot of fashion um, trouble. Where they're like, glasses yeah. are here now. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. Yeah. So I leave that to them. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, no, the, the day. Uh, Austin Walker DM'd me to say he liked Ronin. I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to screenshot this, and now I never have to do anything again. <laughs> I would I would simply die if Austin told me that he I, yeah, liked something well, I, I did. made. Um, hello, I'm back. I made it. <laughs> but, like, his... Getting spooky for Pride Month, talking yeah. to a gay ghost. Uh, I love ghosts. Metal probably be evident if you read my stuff it's also definitely coming back in a big mm -hmm. way in book two of archive <laughs> but yeah no uh star wars ronin was a very i've been reflecting on it lately as i like come up on or well one because the second season of visions just came out and it was stellar mm -hmm. um i love animation uh, so as a medium, I just really like watching like really clever, really good stuff. And there was a lot of that. Um, mm -hmm. I also am really drawn to AU's alternate universes. So in that way, Visions was like made for me. <laughs> um, so yeah. getting to invited to work on it, I just, I, <laughs> I have things I say about it which have become rote because I've said them so many times but because of mm -hmm. that they can no longer really capture the magnitude of the emotion involved because it was just such a perfect invitation to mm -hmm. because I, I had been kind of like I got fixated on Star Wars as a child at like age seven and then um, still really enjoyed it as an adult after reading like the old EU as a preteen and teen. Mm -hmm. And but even so, like I had gotten to the point where my relationship with this with the franchise was such that 
when The Last Jedi came out and it had that kind of like really kind of grim outlook on Star Wars in some ways where it was mm-hmm. like, let's talk about how toxic legacy is and how true that's become of this not only as like a franchise but of like legends period that was really refreshing for me and i Mm -hmm. loved it in the same way that a lot of people really didn't like it because that's they come to it for the legend and i was like my relationship Mm -hmm. with this show wants that complication um so having the opportunity to work on something that was all about negotiating a relationship with the original canon it was just such Mm -hmm. a gift um and I also at the time knew that after having because like at the time I got the offer for that book archive was being shopped around um I signed the deals Mm -hmm. a month apart (laughs) Uh, which is wild but uh Here's a funny thing to say about Archive, which is true. I wrote it thinking, like, make this your argument for why they should let you write a Star War. Uh, so, mm-hmm. you know. They let you write a Star, Star War. After reading a few chapters of the draft as it sold. <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, yeah. I, I knew at the time when it in 2020 that I wanted my next big project to kind of, like, tackle Japanese stuff because um, mm-hmm. I think part of the reason I disengaged from like anime and stuff was because there is so much fetishization of Japanese people and culture mm-hmm. that I was afraid of engaging with it period which is funny because as might be gleaned from my name I am Japanese, but, you know, I'm mixed race, Mm -hmm. I'm fourth generation, but I still was, like, afraid of doing anything with it, and I now have a much Mm -hmm. healthier relationship with my own heritage and my understanding of, like, yeah, uh, the things I write are going to be fundamentally different from someone who has, like, even a slightly different background than I do. We are just navigating mm-hmm. our relationship with our Japanese-ness differently. Um, but yeah. I was in a place where I wanted to engage with it when this project came along. I knew that the thing I did after Archive, I wanted it to be like really focused in on Japan and Japanese culture, um, and especially like Japanese folklore mm-hmm. and ghosts, because another thing yeah. I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about is... Um, Japan and war trauma, both as perpetrators of and victims of great violence, but like really importantly, mm-hmm. perpetrators of great violence because um, the Japanese response to the threat of uh, white and European empire was, what if we made one? <laughs> it will <Yeah>. also suck. <laughs> How about we yeah, also do some war crimes, like, maybe? Oh, Jesus. And we're going to deny them, even in the modern era, which, like, that's that's how all empires mm-hmm. do. But, um, you know. Listeners, content yeah. warnings, obviously, but uh, if you want to engage more with this, maybe check out the Poppy War. But, like, 
Content warnings, oh, content wow. warnings, content warnings, There's all of them. There's a chapter that's like entirely devoted to um, being very frank about it. And people will read it and go like, that was a little grim dark. And if you know anything about the history, you're like, no, that was just like reading a textbook. <laughs> this is, this mm-hmm. is just stuff mm-hmm. people did. And specifically that, that the Japanese army did in China. And it's heinous, like there were just incredible crimes committed up and down um, that that part of the Pacific um, in the Philippines and China and Indonesia and Southeast Asia. It's uh, anyway. So, you know, that's the kind of thing I'm thinking about, right? Like, because admittedly at that time, Mm -hmm. my family was here in Hawaii and my great grandpa had been interned by the um, uh, the American empire <laughs> and, um, which is a, mm-hmm. a different experience, but, um, it's still a thing that I wanted to grapple with at least a little bit. And I getting to do that in a star mm-hmm. Wars is kind of wild. <laughs> um, I obviously couldn't yeah. go into like anything really, really gnarly, but it's present in the book because I thought for sure Twitter was going to get upset about the fact that I turned the Ronin into a war criminal. I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry. He's a Sith Lord. What do you think they are? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh-huh. Yeah. It's war crimes in the book. I was like, uh, how are people going to feel about this? That's... And the reaction has been people are mostly not thinking about it because it's a Star War. Um, uh-huh. But then again, I guess yeah. Obi-Wan Kenobi, if you listen to uh, A More Civilized Age, regularly commits war crimes in the TV show. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, uh, the, the, one of the, the central theses of A More Civilized Age is you have to understand the Clone Wars TV show as a response to the War on Terror yes. and George Bush's America and American war crimes and how Empire gets to do war crimes and as long as they stay Empire, they don't have to answer to them at all or even get them called war crimes. Hooray! Hooray! (laughs) Yeah. So, anyway, on that cheery note, it's also very queer. (laughs) (laughs) There's this post on Tumblr that gets traction every once in a while. People are reblogging it again where... um, I just went on Tumblr to be like, there's there's a trans kid in uh, Ronin who, like, I didn't come up with them as, like, a trans character, but then, uh, like, there's a major non-binary mm-hmm. character who was always non-binary, but then somebody was being weird on Wikipedia, and I was like, how many of these characters can I make explicitly trans? <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, so... You know, I I didn't advertise it or anything. It was just there in the book. But literally, like, three days after it comes out, the Wikipedia Twitter account is like, did you know that there is a non-binary, there is not a non-binary, there is, like, a trans, uh, a young trans man in this book? And the TERFs immediately were like, scream! They're making horrible little noises. Uh So I had to just be like, all right, this is happening. It's kind of weird. People are being... People are being predictably weird about this. Other people are being very cool about it. And I'm like, not going to mm-hmm. explain myself. Because I think if you know, you know. <laughs> and I did it on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
yeah. Well, I mean, like, this is a queer space, so I can talk a little bit about something that I think is interesting, especially because yeah. it's kind of trunky. Um, I had to question how to articulate the transness of this character because mm-hmm. when you are writing a trans character, you don't want to be like, and here is what's going on with their body. Like, mm-hmm. there's a fairly prominent non-binary character in Archive who, like, I don't know what their assigned gender at birth was. It's not important. Mm-hmm. And, uh... Yeah. Literally never comes yeah, up as far as I can, like, it, I personally, I do not know. And I kind of never want to. <laughs> um, like, you mm-hmm. know, they're, they're actually, like, an even more prominent character in book two. It's just, like, it's never going to come up. It's not a thing. It doesn't matter. Um, but, like... Mm-hmm. I love them, by the way. Yay! <laughs> they're so problematic. I love them very much. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> they're, they're terrible, they're the affectionate. They're the worst person I know. <laughs> uh, but... So I had to, I knew the audience I was speaking to with Ronan was not going to be like an audience that self-selected to read my work specifically. It was the Star Wars audience at large. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, you have to kind of like simplify your parlance um, in the way that Mm -hmm. a person may introduce themselves as gay or bisexual or queer, depending on like the people they're talking to. Um, And Mm -hmm. so... I wanted it to be straightforward, but I also wanted it to be a thing that could not be hand-waved. It had to be, like, really explicit. Mm -hmm. So I know that there are some um, queer and trans readers who have read it and been like, but why, why does there have to be hormone treatment in Star Wars? Why can't people just, like, have a different gender? I'm like, well, and... Mm-hmm. In a place where I'm comfortable getting into that discussion, it's because, one, I was thinking about the people I was speaking to, um, which weren't necessarily going to be queer, and I wanted to make sure that there could be no argument. Um, and two, because I was mm-hmm. writing the world in which I was writing, like, patriarchy is very much this thing that exists in Star Wars Ronin. It's, um, mm-hmm. there's a through line of this assumption of the the older man who has the power, um, which is almost precisely Mm -hmm. like the the Ronin's whole problem because he knew he was um, being raised to like assume that kind of position and for various reasons kind of broke with it. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, so this is a world where probably it's implied in the text. I don't think it's made super explicit, but that... Um, being indulged at all in having a non-cisgender is not a given. It is something you may be lucky Mm -hmm. enough to um, find yourself in a position to do, but it's it's by no means certain. Um, So, you know... (laughs) Yeah, we'd we'd love to be able to imagine and and we love... To imagine our, you know, luxury gay space trans communism uh, for the future, but like one of the 
like one of the things about like Star Wars is like Star Wars has always been about mm, the present yeah. day. Yeah. And like so like I appreciate that that's like Ronin is still about the present yeah. day in that way and it's still about like you know like you said it's tackling these very important and very like very thorny subjects around empire and war crimes and like japanese-ness and also around yeah. queerness and like no i think the the pretty clear implication is that like this kid in particular who is has access to you know medical treatment for whatever they require for gender stuff is definitely being groomed mm -hmm. to be a spy and assassin but like and so like the person yeah. who is enabling them to have this access is doing so to cultivate a good relationship so that one day he can ask mm -hmm. the young man like hey would you go quietly kill someone for me and the young man will be like sure like I trust you, like yeah. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a tool of empire. It's being used to exploit a child, and um, mm -hmm. the kid's okay. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Happy Pride, so, everybody. The kid ends up in a good place. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I feel like we've done a good job of, of just, like, keeping it as queer as possible for this episode. I was reflecting the other day on how, like, ten, ten years ago, a legitimate question I would wrestle with was, how queer am I allowed to make a book? And now my, my feelings are like, is anybody here straight? I guess this one. <laughs> uh... uh... <laughs> We're just Spider-Man yeah. meme over here. Uh, it's a good place to be as a creator. <laughs> yeah. Well, Emma, it's been such a blast having you on the show. Uh, before we get going, where can our listeners find you elsewhere online? Okay. Yeah. So, um, I do still have an account on Twitter. At Emma Camden, uh -huh. so E M M A C A N D O N. I'm actually trying to transition more over to Instagram, even though it's a little more effort. Um, where uh -huh. I am, I believe it's E M Camden. If it's not, it's Emma Camden, but I'm pretty sure it's M Camden. And basically everywhere else, I am also M Camden, E M Camden. Um, yeah. And that's Tumblr and. I think at some point I joined Mastodon, but I did nothing there. <laughs> yeah. um, I I kind of am a social media hermit, but these are the places you can That's find fair. me. Um, I'm usually trying to make a joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if if you're looking for updates, definitely check out the Insta if you're looking for some updates and a lot of good shit posting. <laughs> Definitely check the Tumblr. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, where where we pass the brain cell back and forth on the regular. Uh -huh. 
Yeah, um, making tiny screeching noises about friends at the table. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, Emma, thank you again so, so much for coming on the show. It's been such a delight. Thank you very sincerely for having me. It's um, probably the first time I've been able to like truly nerd about Friends at the Table in public with someone who's also like already in Hell the yeah. boat and jumping up and down in it. <laughs> <laughs> Boat party. Yeah, boat party. <laughs> uh, go listen to Seasons of Hyron. <laughs> um, uh... <sighs> Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. Our theme music is Paper Wings by Lillian Boyd. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a sticker and logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter, still, at trunkcast, and I tweet, occasionally, at hbbizniacs. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember... Don't self-reject. Mm-hmm.